In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God speaks these words to Job, to Job who had lost just about everyone and everything dear to him. And still, our Lord finds occasion to say these words to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? If Job needed a lesson in humility, how much more we ourselves. So I've titled this sermon very briefly, On Humility. It has been said, humble yourself or God will do it for you. How true that is. Perhaps one of the most distressing things we see in the Western world around us in the shifts uh, in our country in terms of attitude and heart is a shift toward extreme pride and arrogance such extreme pride and arrogance that there is a complete despising of those who have gone before us, embodied in the tearing down of their statues and the iconoclasm and destruction of history, arrogance and pride of those who now live. In humility, we may choose to look back at previous generations and ponder those things that made those generations great. Therein, we will find, at least comparatively, one of the major differences is humility. Humility born, I believe, of two fundamental principles. People in prior generations had a much greater understanding that there is, in fact, an almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, and that we are entirely reliant on him. The food we get, the air we breathe, everything we have comes from him. And the second point, like it, that we are, each one of us, accountable to him, accountable to our maker, who will, in fact, judge each and every individual without partiality according to what he has done in the body. In these two points, there is great humility. We recognize on the one hand that there is a God, and on the other hand, we don't actually get away with anything. No one does. Now, a people who understand these truths need very few laws and very little government. They are governed instead by God. And so with the proliferation of our laws and our government, we can see at the same time the moral decay of people who in pride and arrogance have forgotten God. So it has reached the point that our politicians pose as our betters, as our saviors, and as our gods. And the celebrities pose as our high priests and saints. You know all of this very well. They're preaching almost daily to us. Some of our greatest sins we couch under the language of pride, and in fact, we even observe a pride month. How fitting. But of course, the temptation is always to simply see the sins of those around us 
and not take a close look at our own hearts as well. And not merely our hearts, but our hearts as they express themselves in action. As we consider our own lack of humility, we might recall those ideas, those thoughts of entitlement that I mentioned in the previous week. But we might also hone in on this phrase, my happiness. My happiness. How many of our households, how many of our workplaces, how many of our relationships are turned upside down to say nothing of that fundamental relationship we have with God? How many of these are turned upside down and destroyed because we have in mind my happiness? At the root of that desire for my happiness is the root of pride and an utter lack of humility. I think we can see this, sadly, even in our own hearts, on the very concrete level of the question of masks and whether or not one in the midst of this pandemic wears a mask. Well, what is unmasked is our pride and arrogance on both sides whether it is the extreme that everyone must wear a mask or the extreme that anyone who wears a mask is a fool, we see unveiled our own arrogance, our own lack of humility. So we have many occasions, even as Christians, and especially during this time, to consider ourselves, to consider our families, Uh, and our lives in, in terms of our workplaces and to see how the sins of pride and arrogance of self-centeredness and self-service and happiness, how these things work great destruction. And we have opportunity to repent, to humble ourselves before God or to be humbled by God. Now, in the text that I'm going to focus on this morning, it will be the text from Job, as I mentioned. But we'll take, time, take a look also, if we have time, at the epistle text where Paul's writing to the Romans, also a text that does a great deal of humbling. We have creation that humbles us, and we have salvation that humbles us, these two things. Now, as we read in the text from where God is speaking to Job, Job 38, we see God bring to mind the earth. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? We need look no further than the ground underneath our feet. We need look no further than the landscape around us in order to be humbled. We didn't make these things. They were made by him and made from of old. So too, what goes for this earth and the things we see also goes for those things we don't see, with exception to satellite or telescope or whatever it may be, when we see the entire cosmos laid out by the maker of the heavens and the earth. And there are glimpses, too, of what we just confessed in the Nicene Creed, that he is the maker not only of what is visible, but also invisible. For example, Job says, uh, or at least speaks of, those morning stars who are singing and those sons of God who are shouting for joy as God creates the heavens and the earth. Those would be the angelic beings. 
And so, too, we realize that God does not merely create those things which we see, which we can measure by science. He creates an entire realm that is invisible. Here, too, we can glimpse the arrogance of scientism in our age, where simply, unless it's observable or or, uh, provable by the scientific method, I won't believe in it. What an utterly myopic view on the world. Arrogant, too. Blinding. So we have this word from God. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Reminding us of who he is as our maker. But how can we meditate on this without also meditating on our Lord Jesus? On the one who comes to us as king of the angels and comes down to earth. And indeed, it is these very same morning stars and sons of God, these very same angels who sing at his birth as God becomes incarnate in human flesh, wrapping himself not only in our flesh, but in the dust of the earth. For that is what our flesh is made of. And wrapped in the very earth, wrapped in very creation itself, he takes fallen creation along with all our sin and shame and leads it right into his death, destroying it forever, and then out through the other side in his resurrection. He is the first fruits of a new creation. All creation will follow him through that narrow way of death and into glorious resurrection where the new heavens and the new earth will be established and made forever. So we have great occasion to humble ourselves. So too, with those words that God speaks to Job about the sea, and how blessed we are to live so near to the sea. You can simply walk down to the beach and observe these things and marvel and be humbled yourself. Of course, if you're a Californian like I am, it's probably been about five years since you've been to the beach. (laughs) Drive by it on the freeway every day, but rarely ever go. So God asked Job, or who shut in the sea with doors and said to, to the waters, thus far shall you come and no farther. Hear your proud waves shall be stayed. It's an opportunity, again, to be awed and humbled simply at the majesty of creation. But how can we consider the great power and strength of the oceans and the waters of the earth without also considering how our Lord Jesus took those very same waters and turned and bent all of their power and strength toward our salvation? toward our salvation, baptizing us in waters, washing away our sins, washing away death, washing away the stain of the devil, giving us new birth into that new creation of which I was just speaking moments ago. The great powers of the sea are turned for our salvation. Last but not least, we might pick out from our text in Job 38 this one point. We hinted at it earlier when we mentioned the angels, that God, to Job, hints of the invisible parts of this earth, of which we do not see and do not know, and this too ought to humble us. We heard of the morning stars singing and the sons of God shouting for joy, the whole host of angelic beings. But likewise, did you catch this line where God says to Job, have the gates of death 
been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Simply death and what lies beyond the pale, as it were, is a mystery to us, unknown to us, but not unknown to God. And so we see that death and our own mortality and our own limited knowledge of what this creation is and what the end of our lives is like, this too ought to humble us. But as with the other points, so with this one, we can't pass on without marveling at our Lord Jesus, who does indeed know precisely what these gates of death are. And he has passed through them and made a way so that we too might pass through these gates of death. And our Lord Jesus does in fact know the gates of deep darkness. As we confess in in the Apostles' Creed, he descends into hell. And there he shatters and breaks the power of hell, proclaims his triumphant victory over the devil, and saves us from that deep darkness. Jesus tramples death by death. Jesus is victorious over death and hell. And so in the text of Revelation, we hear him saying, I have the keys of death and Hades. As Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so to humble ourselves properly is to empty ourselves so that we can receive more and more of Christ. Indeed, the fullness of who he is and what he has done for us. Now, the point of all of these rhetorical questions that God is putting to Job is simply this. Open your eyes and humble yourself. As all of creation preaches humility to you, so too does salvation. Because after all, and as we have said, creation itself leads to, for you individually, for me individually, nowhere else than the grave. As it is for creation, so then it is for salvation. And that we see in spades in the book of Romans, which really in many respects is a tour de force on humbling ourselves. In our text today, we see the impossibility of saving ourselves. Who will ascend into heaven? Can you? Who will descend into the abyss? Can I? Who will save himself from everlasting shame? when the deeds of all are revealed on the last day? Who will find salvation by his own searching and questing? And how will we poor sinners reach out to a creator so good whom we have so offended with our thoughts, words, and deeds? Paul answers and shows forth the grace of God. The word of God is near you. You don't have to ascend into the heavens. You don't have to descend into the abyss. The word of God has been brought near you. And everyone who believes in this word made flesh, everyone who believes in Christ Jesus and his word of forgiveness will never be put to shame. Into our darkness and into our ignorance, 
of God, our ignorance of what might even make for our salvation, God brings the light of his good news. Faith doesn't come of our own efforts. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by that word of Christ freely given. And so too, we see this, this duality. The more we humble ourselves, the more we are exalted to receive Christ and the fullness of his grace and mercy toward us. Creation and salvation work together to humble us. As St. Peter writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This should help clarify, and I won't spend much time on it right now, but clarify in our minds that humility isn't simply a psychological belittling of oneself. Humility isn't this, woe is me, I'm the worst, I'm a worm kind of idea that we very superficially assume that must be what humility is like. To help cleanse us from this way of thinking, C.S. Lewis has a great quote. Humility isn't, isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And that's precisely right. It's precisely right and embodied in our Lord Christ Jesus, who thinks not of himself, but first and foremost of his Father and his Father's will. And then secondarily, of what is good for his neighbor, for us. He thinks not of himself, but of his Father and of us. As Philippians 2 teaches, have this mind in yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who considered equality with God a thing not to be grasped, but humbled himself. And Paul goes on to show these two ways in which he humbles himself. First, by way of the incarnation, by taking on the form of a servant and emptying himself of his divine glory and majesty. And then second, by being obedient to God to the point of death, even shameful death on the cross. And what greatness did this humility of Jesus work for us and for our salvation? And so he who humbled himself before God has been exalted by God and there is no name in heaven or on earth other than Jesus Christ by which man can be saved. So as we humble ourselves, we actually conform ourselves into the image of God's own Son. Now, just a couple of points before we close to try to get your mind thinking in, in the way of practicality, in the way of what this actually means as the rubber hits the road in your life. Consider what changes you might make in your life as you think, in all things, God first. In all things, God first. And then also as you think, in all things, my neighbor first. In all things, those around me first. What things come to your mind 
what changes might you make? We can think very concretely and very basically, and I know many of you do this already, but we can think of the concrete change to your day, to your day, where in humility you have in mind the things of God, not the things of yourself, and so you begin your day with prayer. Our catechism is wonderful. If nothing else, begin with the Lord's Prayer. Otherwise, memorize the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. It can all be done in a matter of minutes, but how it shapes and changes the entire trajectory of your day. We pray at meals, the three meals, giving thanks to God for the mercies that he gives to us and to all people. And then we pray likewise at the close of the day. Same thing, the Lord's Prayer at minimum. Otherwise, we might even there recite the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Our entire day then begins to change shape as we put God first. And as we put him first, others come first too. Again, I know most of you are doing this, but as we humble ourselves, we might also consider the shape of our week. Our week changes shape when we put God first and others first because it means church is a non-negotiable. Every single Sunday, we are coming to our Father's house We are sitting at our Father's table. We are hearing his words, receiving his gifts, and being strengthened for all the many and various vocations he has given us. In wanting to be humble, we, very much like Peter, want to do something that isn't natural to our fallen state. We want to be humble. Peter wanted to to walk on water just about the same thing. (laughs) May God have mercy on us and grant us humility. But this can only be accomplished with our eyes on Jesus. Peter got out of the boat, and it's remarkable. He actually did walk on water. He walked on water, the text says, and he came to Jesus. But then what happened? He took his eyes off Jesus and put his eyes on the wind. And he was afraid. The chaos, the tumult, the changes, the threatenings of everything all around him, he took his eyes off Jesus and put his eyes there, and he began to sink. He began to fail. He cried out, as all of us must, Lord Jesus, save me. And because Jesus is who he is, He immediately reaches down, grabs hold of him, grasps Peter to himself, and saves him. But not without these words to Peter and by extension to us. Why did you doubt, O you of little faith? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.